This recording was produced by Green Lane Masjid. For more information on the activities and services the mosque provides, please visit www.greenlanemasjid.org. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in amma ba'd. So this is inshallah ta'ala the next setting of Tafsir al-Jalalain, its reading and its commentary. And uh, we, or before we begin, I want to just mention something very briefly about the way that the scholars of the past used to seek knowledge. And I know that these sittings are long, they're three hours at least so far, um, and they're likely to continue to be that length of time. And it's something which can be uh, difficult to bear, can be something which at times may, you know, you may feel uh, a lack of energy, especially in the month of Ramadan as you're fasting. But I want you to know that this is how the scholars of the past used to seek knowledge. And this is the time and the effort, if not more, much more than this, that they would put in into the pursuit of knowledge. And that is because knowledge is in and of itself an act of worship. So every moment, every second, every minute that you spend seeking knowledge, reading the Qur'an, learning the Qur'an, studying the Qur'an, it is an act of worship to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And when a person has sincerity in that act of knowledge, it is one of the greatest acts of worship that you can perform after the obligatory deeds as well as the position of Imam Ahmad and others from amongst the scholars of Islam. And just to give you an indication as to the lengths of, by which some of the scholars of the past used to go to seek knowledge, and then how Allah blessed their efforts, their sincerity, their intention and their endeavors. We have the example of Imam Yahya al-Layfi. Yahya al-Layfi is one of the students of Imam Malik ta'ala. And he is one of the most famous narrators of his muwatta. The muwatta of Imam Malik comes to us through the narrations of his students. The most common of those narrations is the narration of Yahya al-Layfi. Even though Yahya al-Layfi rahimahullah ta'ala was considered to be from the more junior students of Imam Malik rahimahullah. Imam Malik has much more senior students that lived with him in Mecca and were from, sorry, in Medina and were from Medina. They spent many more years with him than Yahya al-Layfi. Yahya al-Layfi came from Andalus, from southern Spain. And he traveled all the way to Imam Malik rahimahullah ta'ala to study with him. And he spent that time with him and he learned his muwatta from him and then he left and he went back. Despite that though, <coughs> his narration is much more widely uh, read and widely studied than the narrations of his peers from the other students of Imam Malik rahimahullah ta'ala. And a story which gives you an indication of, of his sincerity and his efforts is that when he came to Medina to study with Imam Malik rahimahullah ta'ala, as he was studying one day, and there are many students in the mosque of the Prophet many of them together, and they're studying, someone announces that an elephant has been brought to the city of Medina. At a time and a place where people were familiar with the concept of an elephant, but had never seen one, didn't know what it looked like, weren't aware of what, it was, what its features were, had read about it in the Qur'an, in the story of the army of the elephants, and people, their curiosity overcoming them, even the students, they were manic, they got up, and everyone rushed out of the masjid. And they went to look at this elephant, what is this elephant? Except for Yahya al-Layfi, this new junior student who's come from the other end of the world, and he's sitting here, and him and Imam Malik are the only two left. Imam Malik rahimahullah says to him, why don't you leave? Have you seen an elephant before? Aren't you curious? He said, oh Imam Malik, I've never seen an elephant before, but I didn't travel from Andalus, from southern Spain to Medina, to look at elephants. I came to study with you and learn the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. 
Imam Yahya Laythi says that when I said that to him, Imam Malik, it's as if I increased in respect in his eyes. And he began to give me and show me that respect. And that is a testament to his, inshallah, sincerity and to his determination and focus in the pursuit of seeking knowledge. And these scholars whose works that we benefit from, the likes of Imam Siyuti, rahimahullah, and others, there is those years of traveling for the sake of knowledge and studying and learning and memorizing and revising that they put in that makes them these amazing giants in our religion that hundreds of years later we are still reliant on their books and on their tafasir and on their narrations of hadith and our religion is built upon what they have passed down from generation to generation by the permission of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and all of that knowledge going back to obviously the book of Allah and the sunnah of his prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam the point being here that yes it can be difficult and long and three four days in this is the time when some people start to drop off and some people think it's too much or it's not something which I can necessarily commit to. But just remember that you're probably unlikely to have done the tafsir of the complete Qur'an in this fashion before. And if you don't follow a program like this, it is probably unlikely that you will do so again. And one of the benefits of having a program like this is that when someone's reading it for you, or you're going through it with someone, it is easier to finish a book than if someone was to give you tafsir jalalain or some book of hadith, Bukhari, Muslim, and say, read it by yourself. To follow someone and to be engaged in a communal pursuit is one of the benefits and one of the etiquettes of seeking knowledge as we will inshallah ta'ala mention when we come to Surah Al-Kahf. One of the etiquettes of seeking knowledge is that you do it in a group and it is one of those acts of worship that it is recommended that you pursue with people around you and with people who are with you. So we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he gives us the ability to continue and that Allah azza wa jal makes it easy for us. Uh, so before we begin inshallah ta'ala with today's session I asked a question yesterday concerning the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal the verse of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala walillahi al-mashriqu wal-maghrib and how Allah Azza wa Jal says that the east and the west belongs to him and also in the Quran like in Surah Al-Rahman Allah mentions the east and the west in the dual form Rabbul Mashriqaini wa Rabbul Maghribain and also in the Quran in Surah Al-Ma'arij Allah Azza wa Jal mentions it in the plural form فَلَا أُقْسِمُ بِرَبِّ الْمَشَارِقِ وَالْمَغَارِبِ and the scholars have a number of approaches, but I think after yesterday I will just give you one answer rather than trying to give you three or four and confusing the issue even more. Walillahi al-mashriq wal-maghrib, the singular form, is that Allah Azza wa to him belongs everything in the east and the west, which is very clear. Everything in the world belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Everything in the east, everything in the west, it belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The dual form, Rabbul mashriqaini wa Rabbul maghribain is the setting and the rising of the sun and the moon in the east and uh, in the summer and the winter. In the summer the days are longer, the nights are shorter. In the winter the days are shorter, the nights are longer. And so the scholars say that Allah Azza wa Jal is not just focusing on the east and the west as two directions or two parts of his, his world, but also Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is focusing on how it differs from time to time in the different seasons that Allah Azza wa Jal has given to us. And they mention, and Allah Azza wa mentions, or the dual form, as uh, the east and the west arising, and not the four seasons, rather just the, the summer and the winter, because in some countries, in some lands, they don't really have the four seasons. They have a winter and they have a summer, they don't really have a spring and an autumn, and that was also very common even amongst the Arabs. The Arabs were more familiar with the seasons of the summer and the winter than they were of something called the spring and something called the autumn. The plural form, therefore, the scholars say, and this is the opinion that Ibn, Imam Ibn Jarir al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala, gave in his tafsir. 
is that it refers to the different rising and setting points of the sun each and every single day of the year. So the sun rises, Fajr and Maghrib every day as we know, a couple of minutes, one minute, it changes each and every single day. Each and every single one of those points, Allah Azza wa takes an oath by them as well. And the meaning of all of that together then is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't just own something when he owns it, like the east and the west or the sun and the moon, but he owns each and every single finer detail and aspect of his creation subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so it is a sign of Allah Azza power and his complete control subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we're on Surah Al-Baqarah, we're beginning today inshallah ta'ala with verse number 238. And we are in the midst of speaking about verses concerning divorce. And Allah Azza wa has gone into some detail concerning them. And we passed over them in, in somewhat of a quick fashion because many of these issues are fiqh issues that require a lot of time and depth to study. But one of the things that you will benefit from this and one of the points of these verses is that divorce is often one of the issues in which there is much oppression and much wrong. Either done from the husband to the wife or the wife to the husband or from the families of either of the spouses towards each other. And because of that, and especially in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, divorce was also something which was a way in which people would oppress others, and especially men towards women. Allah goes into great detail concerning this because it is from the way that we submit ourselves to Allah because some people find it easy to submit to Allah when it comes to praying, when it comes to fasting, when it comes to making hajj. But you ask them to follow Allah's rules and commands when it comes to divorce or business or things that have a personal impact upon them, they find that far more difficult. So Allah is going through these verses and they will continue. But verse number 238 and the next couple of verses are verses in which Allah then changes the subject matter to salah. And the reason that is done, and Allah knows best, there may be a number of reasons, but before I go into some of them, I think it is important to mention the statement of some of the scholars of tafsir from amongst them Ibn Ashur. Rahimahullah in his tafsir al-tahrir wa tanweer He says that every time that Allah Azza wa changes from subject to subject It is not necessary for us to know or to understand the reason why that change of subject occurs And the reason why he's saying that as a principle is because sometimes when you try to draw connections Between each and every single change of subject Sometimes it is easier to do and more apparent but sometimes it is difficult to do and to try to make that connection leads to a level of takalluf, a level of, you know, like kind of going to excess in trying to just draw out any type of connection that necessarily isn't apparent or isn't really what is being referred to. But we just feel obligated to have connections between these different passages. Having said that here, there is a number of statements of scholars concerning why Allah Azza wa mentions salah in the midst of divorce. From them is that Allah Azza wa is telling us in these verses to preserve his commands regarding the salah. And if Allah is telling us to be this careful in terms of the salah, then Allah by mentioning it in the middle of the verses of divorce is telling us to have that same type of attention on detail and same type of adherence to his commands when it comes to issues of divorce. And that's why I said for some people it's easier to do when it's not something personal that affects them, but when it comes to their money and their relationships and their family, it is more difficult for them to do. Another reason that some of the scholars gave is because salah is one of those acts of worship that in times of difficulty and hardship, especially in initial like divorce where there may be children involved and families are splitting up and there is maybe a contentious issue over wealth and property and money and so on and how to divide those assets. It is something which people may feel and have and do feel a great deal of stress going through that process. 
And one of the ways that we deal with those issues that are difficult for us is by turning to Allah Azza wa in worship. And it was a practice of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam when something would would worry him, that he would rush and hurry to the prayer alayhi salatu wasalam. And so Allah Azza wa tells us this. And from the reasons that have been given and Allah knows best, is that Allah Azza wa will speak about a certain prayer and that is called the middle prayer, Salatul Wusta. And amongst the Arabs, the Salatul Wusta had a special position. And, and we'll come on to the different opinions amongst the scholars of Islam, but the strongest of those is that it is the Asr prayer. And that's towards the end of the day. And the Asr prayer amongst the Arabs had a special position, that part of the day. That is often when they would take their oaths and when they would need test, uh, witnesses to come and give testimony, they would bring them and draw them out at that time because they considered it to be a time when people are, are more likely to be truthful because of the time of the day and because of the sun setting. And Allah Azza wa Jal tells us to preserve the salah and in the other verse that we will come across inshallah ta'ala in a few juz when Allah Azza wa Jal tells people to give testimony min ba'di salah fayuqsimani billahi in rtabtum la nashtadi bihi thamana It is the position of a number of the scholars with tafsir that that salah that you ask people to pray before they give a testimony to ensure that they are speaking the truth because they've just offered their prayers to Allah Azza wa Jal Some of the scholars were of the opinion that it is any prayer others said it is the asr prayer for that same reason, and Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. So Allah Azza wa Jalla tells us to pray and to safeguard the prayers, meaning, meaning to offer them at their correct times and in the ways in which they have been legislated by Allah Azza wa Jalla and by the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. But then Allah specifies a certain prayer. وَهَذَا مِنْ ذِكْرِ الْخَاسِ عَلَى الْعَامِ You have the general prayers that you're meant to preserve, but then Allah specifies a prayer. And He considers it to be, gives it more focus because of the attention that needs to be paid to it. And that is the Salatul Asr. The middle prayer, according to the majority of the scholars of Islam. And there's the position of At-Tabari and Ibn Kathir and Al-Qurtubi and many of the scholars of Islam that the prayer that is being referred to is the Asr prayer. Others from amongst them said that it is the Dhuhr prayer and that's reported as being the opinion of Zayd ibn Thabit radiallahu anhu, the famous companion. Others said it is the Subh prayer and the Subh means Fajr prayer, the morning prayer. And that is a narration of Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah. But it is authentically reported in a number of hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ referred to Asr prayer being the middle prayer. From them is the hadith in the Muslim of Imam Ahmad. The hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha that he said that the middle prayer is the one that has the two prayers before it and the two prayers after it. Meaning, Fajr and Dhuhr before it, Asr and Maghrib after it. And there are other hadith that speak about the position of the Salah. From them is the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ Collecting the Sunnah of Ibn Majah and other than that, whoever misses the Asr prayer, it is as if they have lost their family and their wealth. 
whoever misses the Asr prayer, meaning intentionally, is as if they have become bereft of their family and their wealth. Again, showing you the status of the Salah. And some of the scholars say the reason for that is because the Arabs would have the custom of having a Qaylula, midday siesta, which would happen after Dhuhr prayer. And sometimes when you're tired and you're exhausted, they would become lax when it comes to the Asr prayer, praying it late or delaying it because they're resting during the day. And that's something you know, which personally I can attest to. When you're in a hot climate and, you're, and the days are short and you sleep after Dhuhr and you've had lunch, it is sometimes difficult to wake up for Asr prayer. So Allah Azza wa stresses the importance of the Salah. And pray to Allah out of obedience, meaning stand. What does Qunut mean? It can mean a long standing and it can mean obedience to Allah Azza wa Jal. And that is the opinion that it seems that Imam Asiyuti rahimahullah chooses. And it is the statement of Sa'id ibn Jubair and al-Sha'bi and others from amongst the Salaf that Qunut means to stand in obedience to Allah Azza wa Jal with khushur, with attentiveness, with concentration and so on. And it is said, as he mentions here, the hadith of Zayd ibn Arqam radiyallahu anhu al-Bukhari al-Muslim that it was allowed at the beginning of Islam for people in Salah to speak to one another for necessity. If there was a need, they could speak out. As is the notion of one of the companions who came after a long journey, not realizing that the ruling of Salah had been changed and speaking in Salah had now been forbidden. He came and he spoke and when someone sneezed, he said to them, Alhamdulillah, O Allah, and he spoke out to them. It was allowed in issues of necessity to speak at the beginning of Islam in Salah. Then Allah Azza wa revealed this verse and the Prophet ﷺ told the companions do not speak in the Salah. In the Salah, لا يصلح فيها أو لا تصلح فيها شيء من كلام الناس. This Salah, it is not befitting that within it you speak as you would speak outside of it. And that's why the Prophet ﷺ said concerning the Tawaf, it is Salah. The difference being that it is allowed for you to speak in the Tawaf. Meaning that in the Salah, therefore, you cannot speak. And this is why some of the scholars say that these verses are mentioned in the midst of divorce because of the need of people to adhere to the, the rulings and the commands of Allah Azza in issues like divorce. Allah Azza is saying that even in a time of fear on the battlefield or if you're in a state of fear, there is no excuse not to pray. If you can't pray standing, you pray sitting down. If you can't pray sitting down, you pray lying down. If you can't even pray lying down and you can just move your head, you move your head. To the extent that the scholar's position is that if you can only move your eyes, you pray with the movement of your eyes. Meaning that there is hardly any excuse to miss the salah unless and in those very few limited circumstances such as the monthly cycle. So Allah stresses the importance of salah. You can combine between the prayers. You can shorten the prayer. There is, even on the battlefield, a prayer by the name of Salatul Khuf, the prayer of fear that is offered on the battlefield. But the Salah in and of itself, no one is exempted from it, generally speaking. If that is the case with the Salah, then Allah is saying, likewise, when it comes to the other commands of Allah, you should have that level of due diligence, that level of wanting to adhere to Allah's commands when it comes to those other affairs and Allah knows best. وَالَّذِينَ يُتَوَفَّوْنَ مِنْكُمْ وَيَذَرُونَ أَزْوَاجًا وَسَلِيَةً لِأَزْوَاجِهِمْ مَتَاعًا 
So this is concerning those people who become widows. A wife becomes a widow, her husband, husband passes away at the beginning of Islam. She would be entitled for a year of maintenance from the estate of her husband. And as Asiyyuti Rahmanullah says, that that was later abrogated by the verse of the Quran that we've already recited. It is the verse which was 224, where Allah limits it to four months and ten days. During that month, which is called the Idda, is it therefore the position of the husband, his estate, he's passed away, but his estate, to make sure that the wife continues to have maintenance for that period of time? Is that taken from the estate or not? This is the position of difference amongst the scholars of Islam, meaning was the whole of the verse abrogated, or the only part that was abrogated is the year, the, the, the time limit from the year to four months and ten days. The position, as you've heard here, of Imam Shafi'i rahimahullah, is that it is only the time limit, and therefore the maintenance continues for those four months and those ten days. And the position of other scholars, like the Hanbali position, is that it is not from the rights of the wife to continue to receive that maintenance. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. <laughs> And this is now speaking about the women who are divorced. So their husbands, they're not widows. Their husbands divorce them and both are still alive. It is the sunnah that the wife when she is divorced continues to remain in the house of her husband. So she doesn't leave, which is uh, an incorrect practice that we find in our time. When the wife is divorced, she leaves straight away. And she goes to the house of her parents. The wife is meant to remain and her husband is, continue, is to continue to spend on her in the waiting period. Because that is more likely to, to lead to reconciliation and resolving the issue between them if and if needed with the help of other people to come and reconcile between them. That is the way that, that it is meant to be done. And then if it's not working and the, and the period comes to an end, they leave. And that is what Allah Azza wa Jal is referring to. So they continue to receive maintenance. And they continue to have good etiquette. Even though the divorce has been pronounced, they continue to live together in a way that is good and with ma'roof. <laughs> Supplication of their prophet Ezekiel. 
It is for some time after being brought back from death, wearing things which resemble shrouds, remaining in their tribes. Allah shows great favor for mankind, part of which was bringing those people to Christ. But most people are not grateful. They do not thank Allah. This meant to encourage the believers to fight, which is why the next ayah continues with the instruction to do so. Fight in the way of Allah, meaning to elevate his deen. Know that Allah is all-hearing, meaning hearing your words, all-knowing, knowing your states, and he will repay you. This is the story of, um, in Arabic, they call this prophet, the prophet Hizqil. Hizqil, in, in biblical terms, Ezekiel. This is a prophet that Allah sent to a group of people, and this is an example of Allah mentioning the story of a prophet, but without mentioning the name of the prophet. And a common misconception that people have of the Qur'an is that the names of the prophet, or the only stories concerning the prophets that are mentioned in the Qur'an are those whose names are mentioned explicitly. No, Allah mentions stories of prophets in which there is no explicit name of the prophet mentioned, but the story is referring to something which happened with the prophet of Allah Azza wa Jalla, and this is an example of that. These people, it is said that they left, and we don't have any authentic hadith from the Prophet ﷺ concerning this story, and that's why you have a difference of opinion as to how many they were, but Allah says that they were in the thousands, but does that mean four or eight or seventy or any other number? And then they were made to die. How long did they die for? Was it a week or less or more? Because we don't have anything authentic concerning that. But these were people who left for one of two reasons. They fleed from their town. Either because a plague was sent upon them, so they fleed thinking that they would save themselves from death, or because their Prophet commanded them to fight in the path of Allah, and they fleed, fearing death for themselves. So Allah Azza wa showed them His power, that is irrespective of whether they stay or flee, whether they fight, they don't fight, whether the plague comes to them or not, Allah is the one who controls their life and death. And it is not the plague that causes them to die, or jihad in the way of Allah that causes them to die, it is Allah who controls their life and death. فَأَمَاتَهُمُ اللَّهِ they, they, they died. فَقَالَ لَهُمُ اللَّهُ مُوتُ Allah caused them to die ثُمَّ أَحْيَاهُمْ And then Allah brought them back to life to show them His power. And then Allah Azza wa Jal then obviously gives the command to fight in the way of Allah Azza wa Jal. It is important to mention here because we've had also already a number of verses concerning jihad and we will have obviously much more in the Qur'an. That jihad is a concept that has to be understood within its correct context, with its rules and its conditions. Not least of which is the need for the Muslim ruler to issue that warning. And all of the etiquette and conditions to be there. And then those people who you fight and so on. To use these verses of jihad or killing or fighting in the path of Allah. And to misinterpret them which unfortunately is something common in our time. Where people use them to fight and kill innocent people or harm people. Or to commit acts, acts of terrorism and extremism and so on. This isn't something which is from our religion. Nor do the verses of the Quran allow that. And nor is that what Allah Azza wa is saying. And how Allah is speaking about jihad must be taken into the context of all of the verses of jihad being brought together and understood in their entirety and in their complete form. To take one verse and to isolate it from the rest of the Qur'an and the rest of the sunnah of the Prophet is not only a fallacy but it leads to, as we see, greater harm than good. So these are points which shouldn't really be need to be mentioned but it is unfortunately an uh, you know, sign of the times that we live in, that we have to make these things explicit. And so therefore, that is an important point to remember. Yeah.
and multiply it more than 20 times over, from 20 more than 70 times. That is, yudha'ifahu and yudha'ifahu. يُضَاعِفَهُ فَيُضَاعِفَهُ وَاللَّهُ يَقْبِضُ وَيَبْسُقُ وَإِلَيْهِ تُرْجَعُونَ Allah both restricts and withholds provision from anyone who wishes as it has for him and expands the provision of anyone who wishes as it has for them and you will be returned to him meaning the next world at the resurrection and he will repay you for your actions أَلَمْ تَرَ إِلَى الْمَلَكِ بَنِي إِسْرَائِلَ مِنْ بَعْدِ مُوسَى what do you think about the story and news of the nobles and the community of the tribe of Israel after, after Moses' time, meaning after his death? If When they said to one of their prophets, meaning Samuel, give us a king and establish him for us, and we will fight together with him in the way of Allah. He will organize us and we will support him. He, meaning his prophet, said to them, Is it not possible that if I can prescribe for you, you will not fight? Whether the asaytum and asitum. This is a question that confirms and records, because that is what actually occurred. They said, how could we not fight in the way of Allah when we have been driven from our homes and children who have been captured and killed? That was done by the people of Goliath. In other words, they said that there was nothing to impede them doing that if it became necessary. Allah Almighty continued, But then when fighting was prescribed for them, they turned their backs and were cowardly, except for a few of them who crossed the river with salt, as has been mentioned. Wallahu alimun bilzalimin. Allah knows the wrongdoers and will repay them. The Prophet asked his Lord to send him a king and Allah responded to them by giving them Talut. So, this is the story of Talut and Jalut and the Prophet Dawood and it shows therefore that the Prophet Dawood is a prophet who came after the time of Musa. Would you not send to us a king or do you not know the story of these people after the time of Musa? This is a group of people from the children of Israel, Bani Israel, who lived at a time when they were under great oppression and there was uh, much harm that was done towards them and much killing. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned this story as a sign or as a lesson to us as to how they responded uh, to their Prophet and the instructions that they would receive from their Prophet. After suffering years of oppression and years of transgression and years of being being uh, being harmed they came to their prophet and they said why don't you appoint for us a king that will lead us in battle that we will fight and we will go and we will reclaim back our rights so Allah says that their prophet said to them perhaps if I give you what you ask for you won't fight and you won't turn to Allah and they said that the name of the prophet is Shamweed or Samuel and again this is another example of a prophet that isn't mentioned by name in the Quran so perhaps if I appoint for you a king, you won't fight. They said, why wouldn't we fight? We've been driven out of our homes, our wealth's been taken, our property has been confiscated. What reason would we possibly have not to fight? And the reason that we will see now that Allah will give us, that they chose not to fight, or many of them chose not to fight, is because when they asked for a king to be appointed, they thought that it would be a king from amongst the elite of them, Bani Israel. Alam tara ilal mala. The word mala means the top tier. The nobility of Bani Israel. Appoint for us a king, meaning from us. 
But when Allah Azza wa chooses to appoint a king, He doesn't base it upon someone's lineage, their status, their wealth. Allah bases it upon a person's piety and upon their iman and upon their fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is now what we will see when they ask for something, but Allah gave them something in a way that they didn't expect, which is an important etiquette to remember. That when you ask for something from Allah Azza wa sometimes Allah can give it to you in a way that you don't expect. It's not what you had in mind, but Allah decrees it to be that way. They asked for something, they got what they asked for, but in a way that they didn't understand. No. So now they've given their king, but who is the king that is uh, the, the king that is appointed up upon them, meaning the general to lead their armies? A man by the name of Talut, Saul. And Talut wasn't from the nobility, and he wasn't from the top rank of their society. But the narrations differ, was he a tanner, was he a shepherd, meaning that he was just a normal labor man, someone who just did normal everyday work. And when they saw that he's the one that's been chosen, they said, why? What does he have that we don't have? Just as the Quraysh would say to the Prophet wasallam, if Allah Azza wa was going, لَوْ لَا نُزِّلَ هَذَا الْقُرْآنُ عَلَىٰ رَجُلٍ مِنَ الْقَرْيَتِينِ عَظِيمٍ If Allah was going to reveal the Qur'an, why not reveal it on one of the leaders of these two great tribes, meaning Quraysh and Thaqif? Why not send it to people who, like Abu Jahal, like Umayyah, like Shu'bah, like Utbah, these are people who are known for their nobility and their position and their wealth, and they've been leaders before for many years. Why doesn't Allah choose them? And that is, they think, a sign, therefore, of their falseness in their prophethood. But Allah doesn't base it on the standards that we set for ourselves and the measurements that we have in the way that we assess people and the way that we judge them. Allah says that He gave him, meaning to Talut, attributes that Allah had favored him with and from them is knowledge. Knowledge. And knowledge is one of the greatest ways of attaining Allah's favors. Sandals and stuff of Musa, the temple of Harun, 
peace of the man who came down, and peace of the tablets Musa received from Allah. Tahmiduhu al-Malaika. It will be borne by angels. Inna fi dhalika la'ayatan lakum in kuntum mu'mineen. There is a sign of this kingship for you in that of your believers. The angels carried it between heaven and earth while they were looking at it until it was placed with Saul. Then they affirmed this kingship and hastened to fight and he chose 7,000 young men. So Allah Azza wa Jalla then goes on to say that their Prophet said to them that the sign of his kingship, meaning Talut's kingship, is the tabut. And it's translated here as the ark, but I think a better translation is a chest or a box. So it is a tabut that they were given. As-Suyuti says that it contained images of the Prophet, and much of what he mentions here in his commentary is from Israelite traditions, and therefore we don't know concerning their validity. But we know that the images of prophets and images generally in terms of statues and so on and so forth isn't something which is allowed in our religion. And therefore, it seems very unlikely that that's what it contained. But it is a chest or a box that Ben Israel would use when they would go to war that would bring serenity to them and their troops on their side and cast fear into their enemies. And it is something which Allah Azza wa gave to their prophets and that they inherited from them generation after generation. The scholars differ. Why is Allah Azza wa Jal, what is this uh, sign? How is this a sign, this taboot, this chest or box? Is it because Goliath had stolen the box? And so the sign of the Prophet is that he will be the one to retrieve it, therefore showing that his kingdom is valid. Or is it, as a Suyuti refers to here, that it's something that he will be given, it will be retrieved for him by the angels and he will be given it again. Both positions exist. And again, as we said, most of this is Israelite tradition, so we don't know which of those is more correct and Allah Azza wa knows best. He says that it contains the relics of the families of Harun and Musa and he gives a number of things that it's possible they could have contained or not. And Imam al-Tabri ta'ala said, it is possible because we don't have an authentic narration that the chest contained some of what is mentioned or all of what is mentioned or none of what is mentioned. Because frankly we don't know. And so therefore... What we believe in is that Allah gave them this chest. Allah describes it as something which gave them peace and serenity and tranquility. And therefore it had an effect in the way that they went to war and that they fought. But what it actually contained and how much it contained and what it was, Allah knows best. He said, Allah will take you the river to show who among you is obedient and who is disobedient. It was between Jordan and Palestine. Anyone who drinks from it is not with me. In other words, I'm not one of my followers. For anyone who does not taste it is with me, except for him who merely scoops up a little in his hand and is content. Without, without taking any more, whether it's wolf fat and hog fat. Such are my followers. فَشَيْبُوا مِنْهُ إِلَّا قَلِيلًا مِّنْهُمْ But when they reached it, they, meaning most of them, drank from it, except for a few of them who contended with handfuls. It is related that it was enough for both them and their animals. They numbered around 310. Then, when he and those who had faith with him, meaning those who had confined themselves to a handful, crossed it, they, meaning those who had run from it, said, We do not have the strength to face Goliath and his troops today and fight him. They were cowardly and would not cross it. 
For those who are sure that we're going to meet Allah at the resurrection and have crossed it, it says, How many a small force has triumphed over a much greater one with Allah's permission in His will? Allah is with the steadfast, giving them help and victory. So Allah Azza wa Jal gives them a challenge, and this is one of the evidences of the Quran that shows that Allah Azza wa Jal can place hardship within hardship, a test within a test. Their test is to go and fight anyway, but now they have an additional test. And that test is that you will come across a river whilst you're hungry and parched and need water and need rest and need provision. But your test is that you are not allowed to drink from it except for one handful, gharfa or ghurfa, both meaning the same thing, a handful. And whoever drinks from it more than this isn't from us, and whoever does not will be from the army. The vast majority of them turned back and didn't proceed and wouldn't or weren't willing to accept this condition that Allah Azza wa had placed upon them. And often in the Quran, Allah Azza wa mentions about Bani Israel, the different challenges or tests or conditions that were placed upon them and how they fall short. Whether in the story of the people of the cow, whether in the story of the Sabbath, whether in the other stories that Allah Azza wa will mention in the Quran, conditions that are placed upon them and they are unwilling to accept those conditions. Even when they're told to go into the promised land and to fight the people in there in order to expel them, they choose to stay back and say to Musa, you and your brother go and fight instead. And it is therefore from the means in which we and ways in which we submit ourselves to Allah Azza wa Jal and to sacrifice to Him in terms of giving up everything that we consider to be valuable to us to accept that Allah Azza wa Jal challenges us in ways that are meant to be difficult and hard and we deal with them, accepting them as they come whilst fulfilling the obligations that Allah Azza wa Jal has placed upon us the conditions that Allah sets upon us must always be fulfilled. They said, Our Lord, put down steadfastness upon us, make, make our feet firm by making our hearts strong in behalf, and help us against the people of the unbelievers. And with Allah's permission, being by His will, they righted them. Dawood, who was in Saul's army, killed Goliath. And Allah gave him kingship, meaning the tribe of Israel, and wisdom, meaning pocketbook, after the death of Samuel and Saul, and no one had, and no one had fought with them before him, and taught him whatever he wrote, such as making armor and the speech of birds. If it were not for Allah driving some people back by means of others, by means of others the earth would have been corrupted because the idolaters would have dominated and killed the Muslims and destroyed their mosques. But Allah possesses favor for all the worlds, means by driving them back by one another. So despite Goliath's army being greater, vaster, more superior, better well and better and more well equipped, Allah Azza wa gave victory to the believers, the people who were with Talut. And from amongst the people who were with in the army of Talut was a young man. A young man who wasn't a general in his army, but was a soldier, a person fighting alongside the army. And he said to the king, I will go and I will kill Goliath. Goliath is the leader of the opposing army. 
and he was considered to be someone who was unbeatable, someone big in stature, strong, very well versed in the skill of fighting and killing in war. I will go and I will fight him. And there are notions that differ as to how he did that and whatever. But Talut was impressed that this young man would take that challenge upon himself and he would go and he would fight. And so he agreed to do so and he went and he killed him. And Allah Azza wa says, and then we gave him kingdom and we gave him wisdom, meaning that we appointed him as one of our prophets. And again showing that Allah Azza wa chooses his prophets from wherever he wants and whichever level of society and whichever background. As Allah says in the Quran, Allahu A'lamu Haythu Yaj'alu Risalata. Allah is more knowing, more knowledgeable of where he should place his message. He gives it to whomsoever he wills, subhanahu wa ta'ala. praises his prophets and messengers and he says tilka rusul tilka is ismu ishara lil ba'id al muthanna it is that but in the feminine form and the messengers of allah as we know are males they are males so why does allah azza wa refer to them in the feminine form why does he say dhalika rusul he says tilka rusul because there is a word here that is hidden and it's referring to as ibn ashur and abu hayyan Ibn Atiyah, Musa scholars of Tafsir said, he refers to the word group. Tilka jama'atul rusul. Tilka jama'atul rusul. That is the group of messengers. And the word jama'a is in the feminine form, which is why tilka is used. Allah Azza wa says that we may gave virtue to some of them above others. But in other verses of the Quran, Allah tells us not to differentiate between them, like at the end of Surah Al Baqarah, We don't differentiate between the messengers of Allah. And the way that you reconcile and understand those verses is that we don't choose which of those prophets to believe in or not. And we don't say that one is lesser in terms of prophethood than the other. 
They are all prophets of Allah, we believe in them all, we honor them all and love them all and we revere all of them in the way that Allah has commanded us to do so. But at the same time, we also believe that some of them are virtues once the baseline of prophethood and messengership is established, Allah gave to some of them virtues above others. Like for example, our Prophet and Ibrahim and Isa and Musa So this is Ayat al-Kursi as we know and Ayat al-Kursi has many virtues in our religion not least of them being that it is the greatest verse of the Quran as is mentioned in the hadith in Sahih Muslim of Ubi ibn Ka'ab radiyallahu and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam asked him ayyu ayatin fi kitabillahi a'zam what is the greatest verse in the book of Allah and he asked him three times and then he replied Ubi ibn Ka'ab he replied Allahu la ilaha illa wal hayyul qayyum the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam struck his chest and said may Allah endow you with knowledge and from them is a hadith of the Prophet whoever recites Ayatul Kursi after every obligatory prayer, nothing will stop him from entering into Jannah except death. And it was the son of the Prophet to recite Ayatul Kursi before he went to bed and in the morning and as part of his adhkar and so on and so forth. Its virtues are many and they are well known. And it is therefore considered to be the greatest verse of the Quran and it is the greatest verse of the Quran because it speaks about the greatest subject that anyone can ever know and that is the subject of Allah Azza wa Jal and the Tawheed of Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala. And this surah is replete with many examples of focusing and refocusing on this one main aspect which is the cornerstone of our religion. 
And one of the difficulties in the time that we live in is the lack of concentration and focus on this issue of tawheed and aqidah and belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is sufficient therefore that Allah Azza wa mentions this surah, this verse in the midst of this surah that speaks about this topic of the tawheed of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. A couple of the points that I, and, and to give the tafsir of this verse in and of itself would, would require a whole session. But just to pick up on a couple of the points just as corrections in his commentary. It is said that this means that his knowledge encompasses. Meaning that he's saying that the kursi, the footstool of Allah Azza wa Jal, because the kursi is the footstool of Allah. He says that it refers to his knowledge and that is ta'weel. That is misinterpreting something that is Allah Azza wa Jal has established for himself subhanahu wa ta'ala. A creation that Allah Azza wa Jal has made himself. But then he gives the other opinion which is the correct opinion. And that is that the kursi in its immenseness. The creation of Allah that Allah has created that is so immense is in and of itself something which is greater than the heavens and the earth. And the hadith that is referring to is the hadith of Abu Dhar radiallahu anh that is authentic in the musannaf of Ibn Abi Shayba. That the Prophet said sallallahu alayhi wa sallam the example of the footstool compared to the heavens and the earth is like the example if someone was to go into a desert, a wide expanse of land and throw a ring or a coin into it. That coin is like the heavens and the earth and the desert is like the footstool that Allah Azza wa has created. And then the Prophet went on to say, and the example of the arsh, the throne of Allah, over and above the footstool is again like the example of someone going into the desert and throwing a coin or throwing a ring into it. Therefore showing you the immenseness of the creation of the heavens and the earth that we know and witness, and above that the immenseness of the kursi, which is the footstool of Allah Azza wa and then above that the immenseness of the throne of Allah Azza wa Jal, and Allah is above all of that in His greatness subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَهُوَ الْعَلِيُّ الْعَظِيمُ And He is the Most High above His creation by His overwhelming power. And this is again ta'weel. The different sects of Islam that deny the many attributes of Allah Azza wa Jal often say that Allah's being above refers to His power. And they don't say that Allah Azza wa Jal is above us. Because they think by saying that it means that we define and confine Allah to a space. But the mistake again is to think that Allah Azza wa Jal is as we are. To compare Allah Azza wa Jal as we are. To think that just because I am here means that I can only be in this seat. And then obviously I cannot be here and there and everywhere else. And so we have this problem or they have this problem understanding the names and attributes of Allah Azza wa Jal. Allah is above his throne. Haqiqatan. In reality. In a manner which befits his majesty. A man came to Imam Malik rahimahullah ta'ala. And he said to him, O oh, Imam, if Allah Azza wa Jal is above his throne, how is he above his throne? He said, Al-Istiwa'u Ma'lum, that Allah is above his throne is known because Allah mentions it repeatedly in the Quran. Wal-Kayfu Majhul, how Allah goes above his throne, how he is above that, is unknown to us. It's knowledge from the unseen that Allah didn't give to us. Wal-Imanu Bihi Wajib, to believe in it is obligatory. Wal-Su'alu Anhu Bid'ah, and to question these things is a form of innovation. Anyone who rejects false gods, false 
And this is the opinion of Ibn Abbas and others and is mentioned in, in the books of, of Hadith and there is an authentic narration mentioned in Tabari that the first portion of this verse La ikraha fiddin, there is no compulsion in the originals revealed concerning some of the Ansar who some of their children uh, were not Muslim and so they wanted to force them and, 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 com- and make them a compulsion in religion make them, force them to become Muslim so Allah Azza wa revealed this verse and as we said before even though the verse may be about an incident that takes place in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, it doesn't mean that the ruling is specific to that situation. The ruling is general, that there is no compulsion in religion. Allah is a protector and helper of those who believe. He brings them out of the darkness of unbelief, the light of belief. So Allah goes on to give and he will give now three different stories all of them showing the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his ability jalla fi and that's because Ayat al-Kursi speaks about Allah Azza wa Jal and Allah Azza wa Jal must be perfect and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shows examples of his power and his perfection subhanahu wa ta'ala in these three stories Allah Azza wa Jal is al-hayy al-qayyum ever living, the self-sufficient, the one who everything else depends upon and those two, as some of the scholars said, every other attribute of Allah goes back to those two names of Allah Azza wa Jal, which is why those are the names that are mentioned in, in, uh, in Ayat al-Kursi. And there's the position of some of the scholars that the greatest, greatest name of Allah, Ismullah al-A'zam, the greatest name of Allah is Al-Hayyul Qayyum. This was a position of a number of scholars of Islam, even though the stronger opinion Allah knows best is that the greatest name of Allah is the name Allah. So Allah Azza wa goes on to give these three examples of his power. The first of them is in the story of Ibrahim alayhi salam. And this is the story of Ibrahim and his traveling 
with his first wife and they pass by the area of this land after they've been expelled and exiled from their own land from their, by their father and their people, by his father and his people and they pass by this king, this tyrant king by the name of Nimrod and Nimrod was a man or a king that was known to be tyrannical and oppressive and he would often take away people's wives and their sister, uh, take people's wives by force he would take them just so that he could show his power and he would obviously do evil with them when he sees Ibrahim with his wife, he says, Oh Ibrahim, is this your wife? He says, No, this is my sister. Meaning, my sister in faith, which she is. But he wasn't overtly truthful and he didn't lie. He, you know, kind of like fudged between the lines. And that's one of the reasons for which he will on the day of judgment say that he cannot intercede before Allah Azza wa Jal because he says that I spoke this untruth, which in reality is not an untruth, but that is the high level of excellence that the prophets of Allah Azza wa Jal have, that they would hold themselves to that standard, that they wouldn't even uh, like to do something in, unintentionally which may be constructed to be uh, untruthful. Ibrahim salam therefore proceeds to have a discussion with this king, and he says to him, who is the God that you worship? And Ibrahim says, my God is the one that gives life and death. So the king says, I give life and death. He brings two captives, two prisoners. One of them he sets free, the other one he executes. He says, look, I can give life and death. So Ibrahim proceeds to give him an even clearer sign. Allah brings the sun and he makes the sun rise from one direction. You make it rise from the other direction, from the west. And he was unable to do so. Again, showing Allah Azza wa Jal's perfection in his power subhanahu wa ta'ala. In the recitation of Hamza and Kisai, if you don't stop but you continue to read, you take off the ha. Yatasanna, Yatasanna, But if you stop, then everyone keeps the ha. Yatasanna, Yatasanna. Came together and had flesh, and the spirit was breathed into it, and the donkey brayed. 
So this is the story of the Prophet Uzair from the prophets of many Israel. And this is a, uh, an incident that we know even historically that it took place when at a time when this uh, king or emperor Nebuchadnezzar, known in Arabic as Bukhta Nasr, he came to Jerusalem and he destroyed the whole of that city and he killed many of its people and exiled the remaining so that, so that um, Jerusalem became a ruin. It became a ruin. And this is, it seems, and Allah Azza wa Jalla knows best to be after the time of Dawood and Sulaiman alayhim salatu wasalam. So he destroyed the whole of the area. And there was nothing left. It was a complete ruin. Its people have been killed. Those that are alive have been exiled. The Prophet Uzair alayhi salam comes and he sees the destruction and he says, how can Allah bring this back to life after such destruction? And when the Prophet asked this question, as we will see in the next verse, when Ibrahim asks a similar question, it is not because they doubt or they don't believe or they have a lack of faith, but it is because they want to see Allah's power even more. Because by having that extra sign, it gives everyone that extra tranquility. So when you are certain that you worship Allah, but then you see before you a sign of Allah, it increases you in Iman. So it's not from doubt, but because they want to increase in already what they have of their strong faith. How can Allah bring this place back to life after such destruction? Allah puts him to sleep for a hundred years. Then Allah brings him back to life. And he shows you the fact that he thinks that he's only stepped for part of a day or a day. Is that when Allah gives someone a miracle or a sign like this. Not only does he give them the sleep for a hundred years. But he preserves them in that sleep. So that when they wake up. They feel like and they look like. And when they look at their hands and everything else. They're clothes and their hands and their skin and their body has been preserved to make it seem that they have only slept for a short amount of time. Just as with the people of the cave, despite having slept for over 300 years, they awoke thinking they'd only slept for a few hours. And they didn't look at one another and think, well, you've aged 300 years, you look old, your hair's gone white, your hair's fallen out, because Allah preserved them in their bodies. And that is from the signs of Allah Azza wa Jal. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him this sign because after he had woken up, that city of Jerusalem had been resurrected in a manner of speaking, meaning that people had resettled, they'd rebuilt, the city had come back to life. And Allah Azza wa showed him through his own donkey that had died and disintegrated because Allah did not preserve it, that he brought it back to life. Allah Azza wa caused it to rise, he resurrected it, he brought it back with its blood and its flesh and its bones. And so Allah Azza wa gave him this sign. Meaning, make them climb you. 
and meeting cotton mouth leaves of their flesh and feathers. Then put a part of them on each mountain in the middle of your land. And call them to you. They will come swiftly rush to you. Know that Allah is mighty. His power is unlimited. Wise in what he does. So Ibrahim took the peacocks, eagles, crow, and cock and did to them what, what he was told. And took their heads with him and called them. And they passed through to one another until they were complete and they rejoined their heads. So again here we have the story of Ibrahim والسلام, and again an expression of Ibrahim والسلام, wanting a sign from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not because he lacks in iman and belief but because Allah Azza wa Jal uh, gives him that extra stride, the extra sign to give him that tranquility of faith. Allah Azza wa Jal is asked by Ibrahim والسلام, can you show me how you bring the dead to life? And Allah Azza wa Jal then says to him take four birds, cut them up and place them on four separate mountains and call them to you and they will come back to you and that you will see then my power in resurrection. Likeness of expenditure of those who spend their wealth in the way of Allah and obedience to Him is that of a grain that produces seven years. In every year there is a hundred grains. That is how their spending is multiplied 700 times. Allah gives such multiplied increase and even more than that. He never grows. Allah is always complacent in His bounty, all knowing of what multiplication is merited. So now Allah comes on to the issue of zakah and sadaqah. So already in Surah Al Baqarah, we've spoken about salah, we've spoken about fasting, we've spoken about hajj. And now this is, and obviously the whole surah speaks about tawheed, so this is the final pillar, and that is zakah and sadaqah. And Allah Azza wa gives this example, and one of the sciences of the Qur'an that the scholars focus on is amthal, parables in the Qur'an. And whenever Allah Azza wa says the word mathal, it means that Allah is setting forth a parable or giving an example. And as we said before, a parable is to bring a concept that may be difficult to understand closer to our understanding by way of giving an example. So the example here is that when you give a pound, that investment increases 700 times because Allah Azza wa blesses our sadaqah in that way. And in the hadith, the Prophet wasallam said that when you give sadaqah, Allah takes it with his right hand and Allah Azza wa nurtures it. And this is from the etiquettes of giving sadaqah. That you don't follow it with men. Men is to hold favor over someone. So you give them someone and then you remind them. Don't you remember I borrowed you money? Don't you remember I did this for you, do that for you? So even though you did good to them, you've, hold, you've held them now hostage to that goodness for the rest of their lives. And you use it to extract from them favors or to make them feel bad or to in some way guilty of the good that you did to them. So therefore your charity wasn't really as charitable as it should have been, but rather it is a charity that is tainted with you constantly wanting to remind them of your favor over them. Wala ada. 
nor is it from the etiquette of charity that you should harm them by saying to them, you're always asking for money, you know, you're constantly poor, you're no good, or whatever it may be. Those etiquettes detract from the reward of the charity and from the objective of giving that charity in the first place. Meaning that if a person, when someone wants to ask of them, wants to speak good to them instead, they can't give them money, qawlun ma'roof, but they say good words, kind words to them, apologize for not being able to help them, wa make dua for them, that Allah makes things easy for them, that Allah forgives them, that Allah has mercy upon them, that is better than them actually giving them money that is followed by harm and followed by that type of keeping them in your favor for years to come. And this is a proof, according to some scholars, of how riya, showing off in any act of worship, can take a person outside of the fold of Islam. Because Allah says, they give money to show off, and then at the end Allah says, He won't guide the disbelievers. Riya in and of itself is a lesser form of shirk that doesn't take a person outside of the fold of Islam. But it is one of the most dangerous and major sins. And the Prophet used to say that I fear for you. Shall I not tell you what I fear for you more than I fear for you the trial of the Dajjal? I fear for you the hidden shirk, meaning showing off. Showing to, you, showing to us its danger. The example of this Allah is saying a rock, a rain that falls on a rock or boulder that retains none of that water and even the small amount of vegetation that was on there wasn't actually attached to it and so it gets washed off and it's left bare. Meaning these people spend and they spend but they don't take any benefit from it. There is no barakah or blessing that they attain from it and they are given no reward for it either. Uklaha. Uk- with, with the dhamma and the kaf. Uklaha. Uklaha. 
And heavy rain does not fall, and there's drizzle. Drizzle is like rain, which is enough because the garden needs rain, so it gives fruit. Whether there is a lot of rain or little, it is like that with spending. The God gives Allah and He repays them whether it is a little or a lot. Allah sees everything you do and will repay you for it. An example of those who do give sadaqah with sincerity, with good etiquette, in the way that it is meant to be given, in the manner in which it is meant to be spent, is like the example of a land, Birabba. Rabba is high up, a land that is high up. It only needs a very small amount of water, a drizzle is enough for that garden to give forth its fruit and its vegetation in a plentiful manner. And that is the difference. The heavy rain for those people who show off in their, in their sadaqah, despite the amount that they give and the multitude of wealth, doesn't benefit them in anything. But with sincerity, even if someone can only give a small amount, it is enough sometimes to save them from the fire of hell. And that is why the Prophet said وسلم, in the hadith that a person will come on the day of judgment. And before them they will see the fire. Behind them they will see the fire. To the right, to the left, they will see the fire. So save yourselves from the fire, even with a date stone. When you have that date stone that's given in the same way, Allah Azza wa Jal blesses that effort more so than someone who gives much, but it is done not for the sake of Allah Azza wa Jal. This narration is mentioned in Al-Bukhari, Sahih Al-Bukhari. The Umar was sitting with the companions and he asked them, What is Allah referring to in this verse? This verse that we just read. And the companions didn't know. And some of them said, Allah knows best. He said, I ask you, I ask you again, who knows? What is this verse referring to? Abdullah ibn Abbas responded and he said, I think I know. He said, Tell me. He said, It's referring to actions and deeds. He said, Which actions? Which deeds? He said, Actions and deeds. So Umar said it is referring to a person who does good and obeys Allah Azza wa Jal. But then shaitan comes to them and shaitan misguides them and shaitan deceives them so that they start doing evil and evil and evil until they are drowned within their evil deeds and all of the good that they did no longer has any impact. A person that does good deeds and that is why it is so important to ask Allah Azza wa Jal not only to accept our deeds but to keep us firm upon that path of goodness. When a person becomes impressed with themselves and they become amazed by what they've done through their own actions, Allah Azza wa Jal can turn that against them. 
shaitan can come and make them feel that sense of arrogance and pride and they fall into evil and that continues and continues until the good that they did no longer has any effect meaning that it becomes nullified because of the amount of evil that they have done said concerning this verse that two things are from shaitan in this verse and two things are from Allah shaitan promises you poverty and orders you to do evil and Allah promises you forgiveness and he promises you his bounty Al-Hasan al-Basri ta'ala said I am amazed that people will take the promises of shaitan in this verse and ignore the promises of Allah Azza wa Jal that we are more likely to follow shaitan and his path than we are to take the promise that Allah Azza wa Jal has given to us and one of the other scholars of the past, he said, three verses of the Qur'an that I came across, if someone was to reflect upon them, it would be sufficient for them. The first of them, وَإِذَا سَأَلَكَ عِبَادِي عَنِّي فَإِنِّي قَرِيمٌ If your servants ask me concerning you, then I am near to them. The verse that we did yesterday. He said that Allah would usually, when Allah or the Prophet is answering the question on behalf of Allah, He commands him to say قُلْ, except in this verse. When asked about Allah, Allah responds without the Prophet ﷺ having to speak, he responds directly. Number two, the verse that we also mentioned yesterday, فَذْكُرُونِي أَذْكُرْكُمْ Remember me, I will remember you, Allah says. He says that if a person was to really understand the depth of that verse and its meaning, it would be sufficient for them. Remember Allah and Allah remembers you. And who, if Allah is remembering them and is remembers them, would ever have any need for anyone else and would ever suffer from any harm. And the third verse he said is this one. Shaitan promises you two things and Allah has promised you to others. Hikmah and wisdom is to put something in its correct place. And Allah says that if you have that ability to understand how to deal with situations by using the correct approach to all of those different situations that you come across, that is hikmah and whoever is given hikmah has been given great good. And that's why you see that the Prophet had times 
when he would be gentle, and times when he would be angry, and times when he would be happy, and times when he would cry and be sad, and he would deal with people in different ways according to their different situations. And that's why often in the Sunnah you have the hadith in which the Prophet will be asked, which of the deeds is best? And more or less every time the Prophet gives a different response because the questioner needs the response that he is given to him. And the Prophet would do this, and that is what we consider to be hikmah. So the idea that in our religion there's no place to be angry, no place to be sad, no place to cut yourself off from people and be a recluse, all of this has its place in our religion because it is part of hikmah if it is done in the correct way. And that is a very important principle in our religion that the obligatory deeds it is better to perform them openly whereas the optional deeds it is better to perform them privately so to pray in jama'ah in the masjid even though there are people around you and they will see you praying and they are witnessing your prayer it is more praiseworthy and in the opinions of some scholars obligatory than to pray at home whereas in your private prayers the Prophet used to pray his optional prayers generally at home and not outside in the masjid and not openly in the public and there is a hadith in which the Prophet said that a person's prayer at home is 25 times better and more virtuous than their prayer in public except for the congregational prayer and the same goes for sadaqah, zakah to give your zakah openly is better because it is an open obligation so that people know that you fulfilled your obligation that you are a person who is fulfilling your duties as a Muslim but every other deed of charity as is mentioned in the hadith of the seven that will be given shade on the day of judgment to spend privately is better and likewise for song and likewise for optional uh, tawaf and so on and so forth when the Messenger of Allah Fact entails a provision. 
وما تنفقوا من خير يوفى إليكم وأنتم لا تظلمون. Whatever good you give away will be repaid to you in full. You will receive full compensation without lacking anything. You will not be wrong. The last two sentences reinforce the first. This narration is mentioned as the cause of revelation for this verse at the beginning of the commentary of 272, verse 272. is the narration of Ibn Abbas, and it is authentic, it is collected in Al-Nasai, and by Al-Hakim, it is Mustadraq. <laughs> portrayed them by the one of people who distracted from it by Jihad. This was revealed about the people of the Sufrah. There were 400 Muhajirun in the village of Mecca who wanted to learn the Quran and go out on expeditions. Because of their state, the ignorant consider them rich because of their reticence to beg, which they refrain from doing. You will know them by their mark, their signs of humility and signs of striving. They do not ask people for something and swear insistently. They do not ask at all, let alone insistently. Whatever good you give away, Allah knows it and will reward you for what you give away. The people of the Sufa are those poor companions who are homeless that would live and reside in the Masjid of the Prophet and their numbers varied. Sometimes they would be a handful, a few dozen, sometimes, as you see, numbering in the hundreds. Abu Hurairah says that Ahlul Sufa were those people who had neither wealth, nor family, nor shelter. So they would spend their time in the Prophet's masjid. And when the Prophet would receive sadaqah, he would give it to them. Allah praises them because despite their poverty, despite having nothing, despite being penniless, they wouldn't beg and they wouldn't insist on people helping them and they would have that self-honor and dignity and trust in Allah not to lower themselves to asking people for help and from amongst those companions was Abu Hurairah himself and as is mentioned in the narration that one day he was so hungry that he came after Salatul Isha to the masjid after the prayer he was so hungry that he decided to go to Abu Bakr to give him salams in the hopes that when Abu Bakr would see him he would be tempted to offer him to take him home to offer him some food. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu gives them salams, they speak to one another, and as they enter the masjid, Abu, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu says farewell and he leaves him. Abu Hurairah goes back to the masjid, looks for the next person, finds Umar, does the same thing with the same intention. But Umar radiallahu anhu at the door also leaves Abu, Bakr, Abu Hurairah standing and goes home. The Prophet is the next person that he sees, so Abu Hurairah goes to him. And the Prophet says, Oh Abu Hurairah, I think you're hungry, why don't you come with me? And then the hadith continues showing that even in times of need and poverty, they wouldn't put themselves out there to beg and to ask in that manner that unfortunately we have become accustomed to sometimes in our time today. So Allah praises them. And in the hadith of the other companion who was the servant of the Prophet also from the people of As-Suffa, when the Prophet said to him, what can I give to you? He said, oh Messenger of Allah, I want to be your companion in Jannah. That's what he wanted from him. The Prophet said, maybe it is something else. He said, no, O Messenger of Allah, only that. He said, so help me by helping yourself to make many or much sajda. Yeah. <laughs> 
practice usury, those who take it, it constitutes any unjustified increase in any transaction in the form of money or goods in either amount for the rest of the term, will not arise from the grace except as someone driven mad by Shaitan as such. That, meaning the reason for the revelation of this ayah, is because they say trade is the same as usury in respect of its permissibility. Allah then repeats what they said. But Allah has permitted trade and has forbidden usury. Allah has permitted trade. Any who receive a warning from their Lord and they desist from consuming it, may keep what they received in the past before the prohibition and do not have to return it. And their affair is up to Allah, whether such a person will be forgiven or not. But any who return to it and consume usury by making it comparable to lawful sales will be the companions of the fire, remaining in it permanently forever. So after Allah mentions Sadaqah and Zakah, he now mentions one of the most common forms of using wealth for evil, and that is the transaction of riba, of using usury. And Allah says that these people on the day of judgment, that's what it's referring to, that they will not rise except as a person who is driven mad by shaitan's touch or someone who is drunk, someone who cannot walk steadily. That is how they will be resurrected on the day of judgment. And Allah then goes to mention on to a number of, uh, of, of, of punishments for those people. Allah obliterates usury, reducing it and removing its blessings. But make sadaqah grow in value, increasing it and making its rewards increase. Allah does not love the inconsistently ungrateful wrongdoer, who makes usury lawful and is obedient by consuming it. In other words, he will punish it. Those who believe in the right actions and establish the prayer and pay zakat will have their reward with their Lord. They will feel no fear and no more sorrow. يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا اتَّقُوا اللَّهَ وَذَرُوا مَا بَقِيَ مِنَ الْرِبَا إِن كُنْتُمْ مُؤْمِنِينَ You who believe, show fear of Allah, forgo any remaining usury if you are believers. This was revealed when when one of the companions asked after the prohibition about usury he had received before it. فَإِن لَمْ تَفْعَلُوا فَأْذَنُوا بِحَرْبٍ مِّنَ اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ If you do not do that, if you do not do what you are commanded, Know that it means war from Allah and His Messenger against you. This is an immense threat. When it was revealed, they said, War we make is inevitable. But if you turn in repentance, you may have your capital without wronging by increase and without being wronged by decrease. And it is one of the, or it is the only major sin that Allah has declared war against the one who does it. Those who commit or engage in riba, Allah Azza wa has declared and His Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam have declared war on that individual. And that in and of itself is enough of a threat of punishment or enough of a threat to show you the seriousness of this sin. If someone left us is in difficult circumstances, he should be granted a delay and should be at until things are 
easier, where there's no salah and no tawah. وَأَنْ تَصَدَّقُوا خَيْرٌ لَكُمْ إِن كُنْتُمْ تَعْلَمُونَ It makes you a free gift of it, and free the letter would be better for you if you only knew or do it. Whereas تَصَدَّقُوا and تَصَدَّقُوا We read in the hadith, whoever grants a delay to one difficulty or reduces it for him, Allah will shape him on a day in which there is no shape but his shape, just by Imam Muslim. And that is from the greatest of etiquettes, when someone owes you something, and then are genuinely unable to pay because of some difficulty that they are in, to allow them an extension to the time limit that you agreed with them is from the greatest of good deeds and to forgive some of it or all of it is a greater good deed the Prophet ﷺ came out to the masjid one day and two companions were arguing over a debt one wanted his money back and the other one was saying I cannot pay it all so the Prophet ﷺ said to the one who had taken the debt you give him half half of what you owed him and to the other one you accept the half and they agreed and that is from the greatest of good deeds. And from the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ is that a person will come on the day of judgment who didn't do any good, meaning he didn't do many good deeds. But the one thing that he would do is that when he would give people their, their loans and he would give them money and the time would come to repay him but they were unable to do so, he would give them an extension or he would forgive them. Allah will say to this man on the day of judgment, why did you do this? He said, O Messenger of Allah, to be easy going to people, to pardon them. And Allah will say to him that I have more right to that characteristic than you, and Allah will forgive him. Then, on that day, every self will be paid in full for what it earns, whether its actions were good or evil. وَهُمْ لَا يَظْلَمُونَ It will not be wrong. Your good deeds will not be decreased, nor the bad deeds increased. And according to many of the scholars of tafsir, as is the statement of Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhum and Ikrima, this is the final verse of the Qur'an to be revealed. Verse 281, and it is the position chosen by Imam al-Tabari and many of the scholars of tafsir, that the final verse of the Qur'an to be revealed is this, fear the day upon which you will stand and be returned to your Lord, and then Allah Azza wa will pay you in full for the actions that you have earned. And the next verse, which is 282, is the longest verse of the Qur'an, and that is the verse that speaks about the etiquettes of taking a debt and a loan, and it is recommended to write it down. So the, as Allah Azza wa say, write it down, it is recommended to have witnesses and write it down so that there are no disputes later on, especially if it is a great amount. يا أيها الذين آمنوا إذا تداينتم بدين إلى أجل مسمى فاكتبوه وليكتب بينكم كاتب بالعدل. You who believe when you take on the debt for a specified period, like a credit sale or loan, write it down to avoid any dispute. A writer should write it to leave the debt down between you justly. Write it down correctly and do not add to the amount of down or increase it. ولا يتكاتبون أن يكتب كما علمه الله. No writer should refuse to write his attributes of as Allah has told him by being generous to him so that he can write. He should not be miserly with his ability to do so. فَلْيَكْتُبُ وَلْيُمْلِهِ الَّذِي عَلَيْهِ الْحَقُّ وَلْيَتَّقِ اللَّهَ رَبَّهُ وَلَا يَبْقَصْنِي مُسَيْئًا And so he should write. It is stressed that the one to whom the debt should dictate because he is the one against whom there is testimony and so he, and so he confirms and knows what he owes and should fear Allah, his Lord, and not reduce it, meaning what he owes in any way. فَإِنْ كَانَ الَّذِي عَلَيْهِ الْحَقُّ سَفِيهًا أَوْ ضَعِيفًا أَوْ لَا يَسْتَقِيعُ أَنْ يُرِدَّهُ وَفَلْيُمْلِهُ وَلِيُّهُ بِالْمَعَادِ If the person incurring the debt is incompetent or wasteful or, or too weak to dictate because he is very young or old or unable to dictate because he is 
Islam oder irgendein anderer Land, das ist noch viel schlimmer. Wenn sich Guardian beschäftigt, da ist ganz sicher, wo Custodian sich beschäftigt von Industrie. Was das für die verschiedenen Ideen, die wir mit Reden kommen. Two, three, adult Muslim men among Muslim activists as witnesses to the death. فَإِنَّمْ يَكُونَا وَجُلَيْهِ فَرَجُلُهُ وَمْرَأَتَانِ مِنْ تَرْضَوْنَ مِنَ الشُّهَدَاءِ أَنْ تَضِلَّ إِحْدَاهُمَا فَتُذَكِّرَ إِحْدَاهُمَا الْأُخْرَى If there are not two men, then a man and two women should act as witnesses, with whom you are satisfied as witnesses because of their deen and integrity. Then the reason that women are doubled is not that one of them, meaning the women, gives testimony, owing to lack of intelligence or confusion, the other can remind, whether it's تُذَكِّرَ and تُذْكِرَ the other can mind her. He can remind her if the other is decided or turned in that direction. Witnesses should not refuse when they are called upon, meaning to act as witnesses. Do not think it too trivial or be too lazy to write down the right to testify because that happens frequently, whether small or large, with the date that it falls due. Doing that and writing it down is more just than Allah's sight and more helpful when bearing witness and more likely to establish justice because it reminds people. And more likely to eliminate any doubt, meaning about that man who appears to his due. Unless if, meaning the transaction is an immediate transaction, hand to hand, taken and given without delay. There is nothing wrong in your writing in, in your not writing that transaction down. Call witnesses when you trade to remove this agreement. This and what is before it is recommended. Neither writer nor witness should be put under pressure by the one who owns a debt or the one to whom it is owed to alter or attempt to prevent testimony or writing or to harm them by forcing them to write or testify to what is not correct. If you do that, means you are forbidden. This is degeneracy, abandonment of the of obedience to Allah on your part. Be fearful of Allah regarding His commands and prohibitions, and Allah will give you knowledge of your best interests. Allah has knowledge of everything. And from that is the etiquette of seeking knowledge. The scholars say, from the greatest ways of seeking knowledge is to have fear of Allah. Fear Allah, Allah will give you knowledge. If you are on a journey and you contract a debt and cannot find a writer, something can be left with, and you cannot find a writer, something can be left with which all parties are satisfied as security. Read as Rihan and Rumun, the plural of Rahim. It is clear that the Sunnah permits, it is clear that the Sunnah permits leaving a pledge while at home even when there is a scribe available. Qualification mentioned here is because leaving a pledge when on, when on a journey is a stronger priority. If you leave things on trust with one another, as when a debtor leaves something with his creditor as security for what he owes, the creditor may not pawn it. Then you add the letter to me, and I'm going to tell you what you have to do. 
And the ones who are trusted must be deliver up the trust and be fearful of Allah his Lord regarding the messenger. Do not conceal testimony when you are asked to give it. If someone does conceal it, his heart commits a crime. The heart is evil, that I mentioned, because when it sins, the other parts of the person follow it and receive the punishment due to wrongdoers. Allah knows everything you do, nothing being hidden from Him. Everything in the heavens and everything in the earth belongs to Allah. Whether you bow low before anything in stars or people and, re- and resolve on it or keep it hidden, Allah will still inform you of it and call you to account for it, meaning on the day of rising. Forgives whomever he wills and he punishes whomever he wills. Allah has power over everything, meaning in respect to repayment and reward. The Messenger, meaning Muhammad وسلم, believed in what has been sent down to him of the Quran from his Lord, and so did believers. Each one believed in Allah, his angels, and his books, whereas Kutubihi, plural, and Kitabihi, singular, and his messengers. They say, We do not differentiate between any of his messengers, not believing in some and rejecting some messengers and Christians too. They say, We hear, mean what you have commanded us and accept it, and we obey. We ask you to forgive us, our Lord. The final destination is to you. The final destination refers to the resurrection. In the ayah before it was revealed, the believers complained about the inner whispering they were subject to, and the thought of having to account for it was very difficult for them, so the following was revealed. This is the hadith in Sahih Muslim of Abu Hurairah that it says that when this verse was revealed, the companions of the Prophet said, meaning the previous verse, 284, they said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, we can pray and we can give zakah, we can do all of the everything else that you ask us to do, but this we cannot do. Meaning that Allah Azza wa they thought would hold them to account for what they make apparent and what they conceal and make hidden. This we cannot do. The Prophet said to them, Fear Allah, will you be like those who will say we hear and we disobey? And then Allah Azza wa revealed the final verse of, of Surah Al-Baqarah. Allah does not charge for himself beyond what he can bear. Only burdening it with what it is capable of fulfilling. لها ما كسبت وعليها ما اكتسبت. For it is the reward of the good against what it has done. Against it, against it is what it has warranted of the evil it did. In other words, the burden of that. No one will be punished for the sin of another or for anything his master has put to him for which he did not do. Say, ربنا لا تؤاخذنا إن نسينا أو أخطأنا. Our Lord, do not take it to task by punishing us if we forget or make a mistake. Do not punish us if we inadvertently or deliberately abandon what is correct as he did those before us. Allah removed that from this community as in the hadith, and so the request is an acknowledgement of blessing Allah. Our Lord, do not load us with such burdens too heavy for us to bear as you loaded onto those before us, meaning the tribe of Israel such as a person having to kill them thousands and hundreds or having to pay a quarter of one's property in zakat or cutting away anything with impurity on it. 
And that is the hadith, authentic hadith that Allah said in response to these du'as, قَدْ فَعَلْتَ Meaning that I have answered them as you wish. And these two verses of Surah Al-Baqarah, the ending of these verses, a number of hadith have been mentioned that we mentioned at the beginning of Surah Al-Baqarah. Some of them also pertain to these verses and their, and their uh, virtues. And also from them is the hadith of in Al-Bukhari of the Prophet he said whoever reads these two verses before they go to sleep it will be sufficient for them we now come on to Surah Ali Imran which is the third Surah of the Quran now. Surah Ali Imran it is Medina with 199 or 200 ayat revealed after Surah Al-Anfal it is 200 ayat according to the um, the Mus'haf that we have and it is a Madani Surah meaning that it was revealed post-Hijrah and that is by Ijma' as Ibn Atiyah says by consensus of the scholars of Tafsir it is a Madani Surah and this Hadith or this Surah rather has also some virtues that are mentioned in the Sunnah and normally it is mentioned alongside Surah Al-Baqarah in terms of its virtues from them is the Hadith that we mentioned of Abu Umama radiallahu an at the beginning of Surah Al-Baqarah that they will come whoever recites these two Surahs it will come as shade for them on the Day of Judgment and Anas radiallahu anhu used to say that whoever amongst us, meaning the companions, had memorized Baqarah al-Imran, we would elevate their status in our eyes, meaning we would honor them and respect them because they had memorized these two longer surahs of the Qur'an. And it's the same as we said in Baqarah. What Suyuti says, Allah knows best what he intends by those letters. It is the same and it will be the same. Uh, Suyuti will, will always say that in all of these surahs that begin with these letters. And the translation will always, in my opinion, not give the, the full extent of the translation. No. Allah, la ilaha illa huwa al Allah, there is no God but him, the living, the self-sustaining. نزل عليك الكتاب بالحق مصدقا لما بين يديه. He sent down to you, meaning Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, the book, meaning the Quran, the truth, which articulates the truth in its reports, confirming what was there, the books before it. من قبل هدى للناس وأنزل القرآن. And he sent down the Torah and the Gospel previously before the Quran. As guidance, awaiting this guidance for mankind to follow them. And, he's, and he has sat down, sat down, which repeats the third time before the Torah and the Gospel was set down each at one God, which was not caged with the other divine revelations. The discrimination, the divine books which distinguish the true from the false. It is mentioned after, after the three named books in order to include others. So what he's saying basically here is that Allah is the when he refers to the Quran, he says, Nazzala, Nazzala alayka al-kitab. And when he refers to the Torah and the Injil, he says, Anzala. And the difference is, Nazzala is something which is revealed over stages. And Anzala, 
in a single at a single time. And that is the difference between the Quran and those other scriptures. The Quran, as we know, is revealed over the period of the Prophethood of the Prophet, whereas the Torah and the Injil were revealed at once. mentions in the Quran verses that are clear muhkam and all of the Quran is muhkam in this sense as Allah says kitabun uhkimat ayatu all of it is from Allah it is free of mistake free of contradiction free of deviation and so on and so forth but there are verses of the Quran that are ambiguous in the sense that we cannot understand them in their entirety and full meaning because our knowledge does not extend to that level because they are from the unseen and the examples that we've been giving of the names and attributes of Allah would fall under that realm. We know that Allah has a hand. We know that Allah is forgiving and merciful. We know that Allah is above his throne. But how? That is something that we do not know. 
And so what do we do? What is the way that the Muslim behaves then? Is that they say that is from our Lord, we believe in it and we do not know. And to delve into it is one of the greatest paths of misguidance. And it is one of the major reasons why over the centuries and generations, people have been misguided from the straight path and from the teachings of the Prophet ﷺ and the methodology of the companions. And that's why in verse number 8, Allah Azza wa then goes on to mention this amazing dua about being steadfast upon guidance. Meaning they follow the ambiguous, they delve into it. Beware of those people because it will lead them to misguidance. This uh, narration of At-Tabarani of Ibn Musa al-Ashari is a weak narration. And it's sufficient that we have the hadith before it of Al-Bukhari and Muslim. Now is for the next verse, verse 12. It is the commentary of a Siyuti rahimahullah before he goes on to verse 12. This was revealed when the Prophet commanded the Jews to become Muslim after he returned from Bedr. They said, Do not be deluded by the fact that you killed a group of Quraysh who do not know how to fight. So this is the cause of revelation. They came back after battle and people were saying to him, just because you won one battle, don't think you're going to win every battle. It's not too late to change. So Allah Azza wa Jal then said to them, no, say to them that you too will be overwhelmed. You too will be defeated. 
There was a sign in the lesson for you. The verb was kana is used here to make a clear separation between this ayah and the preceding one. There was a sign for you when the two parties which met together at the battle of Badr. One party fighting in the way of Allah, meaning obeying him, leaving the Prophet and his companions, 313 men, with two horses, six sets of armor, and 80 swords. Most were on foot, and the other unbelievers. They saw them, whereas they saw them, and you saw them, as twice their number with their own eyes, with clear sight. The unbelievers saw the Muslims as twice their number, and they were about a thousand. Allah reinforces with his help whomever he wills. Allah helps them and Allah strengthens whomever he wishes. There's instruction in that which was mentioned for people of insight who would bet on it and have faith. To mankind, the love of worldly appetites, the things which that human self desires and calls for, and which Allah makes attractive as an affliction or shaitan does so, is painted in glowing colors. Women and children, and heaps of mounds of gold and silver, and horses with fine markings, thoroughbred horses, and livestock, camels, cattle, and sheep, or goats, and fertile farmland. All that, which has been mentioned, is merely the enjoyment of the life of this world. These things are enjoyed in this world and then will vanish. The best destination is in the presence of Allah. The best destination refers to the garden, and that is what should be desired. One of the main objectives of this surah, and Allah knows best, is to establish the importance of obedience to the Prophet <clears throat> Just as Surah Al-Baqarah established the importance of Tawheed, this one establishes the second part of the Shahada, which is Muhammad Rasulullah. And Allah Azza wa Jal in this Surah is telling us that sometimes what Allah Azza wa Jal gives to us from commands or what the Prophet legislated is difficult for the soul to bear because it goes against our natural desires and inclinations that we are attracted to wealth and attracted to comfort and attracted to certain things within our lifestyle to make our life easy for us. And sometimes what we have to do in terms of our duties as Muslims goes against that grain and it is difficult therefore for a person to accept. But obedience to the Prophet and submission to Allah necessitates that you do that. So if you are able to stay away from those distractions that take you away from the path of Allah and His Prophet Allah promises you something which will be even greater. Which comes in verse 15. <laughs> is a question which implies an affirmative answer. Those who are God-fearing and avoid shirk will have gardens with their Lord, with rivers flowing underneath them. Gardens with their Lord. Allah mentions first. With their Lord they will have gardens. And Allah mentions with him first before the gardens to show that they are only with Allah. You can only get this reward with Allah and by following Allah and obeying Allah and the path that leads to Allah Azza wa Jal.
put rivers flowing under them, remaining them permanently forever, and by the end of them they will have purified lives, purified the menstruation and all other impurities, and the pleasure of Allah, where there's a ghwal and wuhwal and great contentment. Allah sees and knows the slaves and will repay them for all their actions. الَّذِينَ يَقُولُونَ رَبَّنَا إِنَّمَا آمَنَّا فَاغْفِرْ لَنَا ذُنُوبَنَا وَقِنَا عَذَابَ النَّارِ Those who say, our Lord, we believe and affirm Allah and His Messenger, Forgive us our wrong actions and safeguard us from the punishment of fire. One of the greatest benefits of Tawheed and one of the clear signs that one of the greatest means of forgiveness is through Iman and Tawheed. رَبَّنَا إِنَّنَا آمَنَّا Because we have believed, forgive us for our sins. And Allah Azza wa Jal will forgive people on the day of judgment who have even the smallest morsel of faith because of that faith. So to have Iman and that Tawheed of Allah Azza wa Jal is one of the greatest means of Allah's forgiveness, His mercy and Allah's favors and blessings. virtues of the people of knowledge is that Allah has made them witnesses to the greatest thing that a person can give testimony for and that is the right for Allah the right of Allah to be worshipped alone and Allah mentions the scholars in his company and the company of the angels alayhi salatu wassalam If 
They turn away from Islam. You are only responsible for conveying the message. Allah sees the stage and will repay people for their actions. This will be punishment by pain. This is one of the greatest verses in terms of what it means to be a Muslim. The Prophet is told to say, I submit my face, meaning that I have submitted completely to Allah as do those who follow me, meaning that it is from the definition of being a follower of the Prophet that we submit ourselves to Allah as the Prophet submitted himself to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which shows you that in essence our religion is simple and easy. It just requires from us complete and total submission. At its very essence, that is what Islam is and what it means. As for those who reject Allah's signs and kill or fight among them, the prophets without envy go right and kill those who command justice, give them good news of painful punishment. Those referred to here are the Jews. It is reported that they killed 43 prophets, 170 of their worshippers forbade them to do so, and they killed them on the same day. Allah mentioned good news to mock them. And that is an Israelite tradition. It is not authentic. It is an Israelite tradition, not a hadith. And what he mentions here of the double reading for kill isn't in the first instance but the second instance. Meaning as for those who reject Allah's signs and kill the prophets without any legal right and kill and they kill those who command justice or fight those who command justice. So in the translation he's put the or fight in one reading in the wrong one. It should be at the second time, not the first time. The first time everyone reads it because they didn't just fight, they killed their prophets. They are the ones whose actions came to nothing in this world and the next world. Whatever good they have done, succeeded in swallowed up, maintaining present kinship is of no value. They will have no helpers, meaning help in the face of Allah's punishment. Do not see those who have been given a portion of the book, meaning the Torah, being called, to, being called upon to let Allah's book just between them, but let a group of them turn away in aversion. They refused to accept his rulings. Two of the Jews committed adultery and went for judgment to Prophet and he judged that they should be stoned. They refused to accept this, and then the Torah was brought, and the judgment was found in it, and so they were stoned. This made the Jews angry. And we mentioned this narration already, the narration in Al-Bukhari. That and we turn away is because they say, the fire will only touch us for a number of days. They said that the fire would only touch them for a number of days, that their ancestors had worshipped the calf, which was 40 days. Of the good action or exaggeration of the evil one. 
That's a narration that it said comes from Ibn Abbas عنه, but it is a weak narration. And so therefore the verse is general. It is a general statement of Allah speaking about his kingdom and his dominion subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then a he says an evil because and it is true Allah controls everything and decrees everything but that is the adab of the Quran and the sunnah of the Prophet that we don't ascribe evil to Allah the Prophet said we don't ascribe evil to Allah even though Allah decrees everything and everything that happens from good and evil is under the power of Allah but from the etiquettes is that we don't ascribe that to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and so Asiyyuti is mentioning this because it is the meaning but Allah gives us this etiquette in the Quran so that we understand the difference between the two Allah says don't take the unbelievers as friends and what it means is as friends against your religion that harms your religion and harms the believers and this is one of those examples of having to understand the Quran and the Sunnah in the context in which it was mentioned because Ibrahim in the Quran Allah, Allah tells us loves his father and he makes dua for him and he's a disbeliever and Nuh does the same for his son and he's a disbeliever and the Prophet loved his uncle Abu Talib and he died as a disbeliever and in the Quran Allah allows men to marry women from Ahlul Kitab, from Jews and Christians and in marriage you grow to love your spouse and you increase in that love through them which shows you then when you take those texts in context 
the meaning of what is being referred to here in the Quran and that is why it is so important when reading and understanding the Quran that is done with knowledge and with someone who knows what they're speaking about and just to read the translation and base your religion upon that leads to much evil and it is not the way of the scholars of the past. These verses 31 and 32 when he speaks about love in the first one Allah will love you meaning reward you in verse 32 Allah does not love meaning will punish Allah loves and it is from his attributes that he loves and from the results of his love is that he rewards but we don't deny the attribute of, of love from Allah as many of the other sects of Islam did and so it is important to remember that because sometimes that is how it is misinterpreted in the tafsir Allah loves and from the benefits of that love and the results of it is his reward and his blessing and his mercy and so on and so forth. We now come on to the story after which the surah is named and that is the the story of the family of Imran. And Allah says that he chose these prophets, Adam, Nuh and Ibrahim because every prophet that comes after each one of these is from their descendants. 
Noah is from the descendants of Adam and Ibrahim is from the descendants of Noah and every prophet that comes after Ibrahim is from his descendants. But Ali Imran, the family of Imran, has prophets within them, but the family of Imran itself, meaning Imran and his wife, are not prophets. But Allah Azza wa raises them here in mention and in their story in this story because He honors them. Because even though they are not prophets, it is because of their efforts and their sincerity and du'as that they make that Allah blesses them with having prophets within their family and from their offspring. And this is an amazing story which speaks about the importance of having that intention to serve the religion of Allah and to want to do good and to come closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala especially through what is one of the greatest and perhaps sometimes one of the most accessible paths to Jannah and that is through our children and our offspring. again is from the Israel traditions that we don't know and perhaps it is true and perhaps it is not but the point of this verse here is the dua that is made by the wife of Imran and again her name being Hana is something which is mentioned in those traditions as well and Allah Azza wa knows best and that is that as soon as she became pregnant she made this oath and this vow and this commitment that whatever was in her stomach and she thought that it would be a male child that that child would grow up and it would be given in the service of the religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and how much we need in our time for parents and people to have that same type of devotion to this religion to say that yes I don't just want my son or only want my son or daughter to become a doctor or a dentist or whatever it may be we need people to give that commitment to this religion that my child will serve this religion they will seek knowledge they will memorize the Quran they will learn they will study so that they can benefit the people and that is essentially what the wife of Imran is saying she is saying that this child of mine I will dedicate to the service of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and it is because of that dua and that intention even before the child is born that Allah azza wa honors her and her family and mentions her in the Quran. <laughs> So Allah Azza wa speaks about then when she gives birth and she realizes that the oath that she made which was for her son 
is now not going to be the same oath because what she gives birth to is a daughter. And the two recitations here that are mentioned, Wallahu a'lamu bima wada'at. And Allah says that Allah knows better what she, the oath that she made. And Allah in His divine wisdom and knowledge and infinite and perfect knowledge gave her what He knew to be better. And that was a girl. And in the other recitation, Wallahu a'lamu bima wada'atu. Allah knows what I gave birth to because when she gives birth to a girl, she has a choice to make. Do I continue with my oath even though now it is a girl or must I change because it is a girl and girls especially in that time and in that context were known to go and seek knowledge and go out and study and do everything else that a male would do. And then she says no actually I will continue because Allah gave me the girl and he knew that it would be a girl and he knew the oath that I made. Wallahu a'lamu bima wada'atu Allah knows what I will give birth to and what I have given birth to and so she continues. And then Allah mentions this amazing dua. And how much we should make this dua for ourselves and our children and our generations to come by the permission of Allah. Oh Allah, I seek refuge in you from our children. Uh, I, I seek refuge, uh, I seek safety in you for our children and for our offspring after them. And that is why it is from those children, Isa alayhi salam is from the children who when they were born didn't come out crying mean that they weren't plucked or pricked by shaitan as is mentioned in the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And all of that is from the Israeliyat and Allah knows best. But Zakariya salam does take her into his care and under his guardianship. And it shows you that Maryam salam, this young girl, loses her parents. Her parents will not live to see how Maryam will grow up and who she becomes, nor will they live to see who their grandchild salam, will become. Which shows you the amazing power of having that intention that Allah may sometimes answer your dua and give you that blessing after you pass away. And for generations that will come after you that you never meet or see or know of. And that is from the beauty of this story. They had that amazing intention and Allah doesn't fulfill it immediately nor in the, the, the generation of their child but the generation of their grandchild. It is Isa that becomes a prophet of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah honors Maryam by giving her, it is said by the scholars of Islam or the scholars of Tafsir, the fruit of the winter and the summer and the summer in the winter and so on from the favors that he bestowed upon her. As Allah says, وَكَفَّلَهَا زَكَرِيَّا Zakariya became her guardian. Whereas, كَفَّلَهَا وَكَفَّلَهَا And she was entrusted to him. كُلَّمَا دَخَلَ عَلَيْنَا زَكَرِيَّ الْمِحْرَابَ وَجَدَ عِنْدَهَا رِزْقًا Every time Zakariya visited her in the upper room, in the laundry space in the temple, he found food with her. قَالَ يَا مَرْيَمُ أَنَّا لَكِ هَذَا he said, Maryam, how did, you, how did you get this? She was 
child said, this is from Allah, quoted to me from the garden. Allah provides for whomever he wills without any reckoning, giving them unlimited provisions without them doing anything to entitle them to it. When Zechariah saw that, he realized that the one who has the power to do at by this time also had the power to give him a child in his old age. The people of his family had died out. So, so then and there, Zechariah called on his Lord when he entered the upper room to pray for a child in the night. And said, O Lord, grant me from your favor an upright descendant. You are the hero of prayer and answer it. So Zakariya immediately, Hunalik, there and then, he turns to Allah and he makes a dua, asking Allah for the child that he has so longed for. And again, the word that he uses is dhurriyatan tayyibah. Oh Allah, give me descendants, and not just a child, a son or a daughter, but descendants that will come that you have favored and you will bless and bestow your favor upon. He was chased, alayhi salam, more than celibate, chased, a followed leader and chased, and a prophet, and one of the righteous, alayhi salam. He said, O Lord, how can I possibly have a son, when I have reached old age and my wife is barren? He was 120 and his wife was 98. He said, it means the command will be so. And Allah will create a son for the two of you. Allah does whatever he wills. Nothing is beyond his power. It was the demonstration of this immense power which inspired his request so that it could be answered. When he saw the earth was swift to God's news, he said what is reported in the next ayah. And shows you that one of the benefits of making these righteous du'as and sincere du'as is not just the benefit that you have for yourself, but the greater benefit that others take as well. Imran and his wife, they make a dua. They get Maryam alayhi salam. And from the benefits of Maryam alayhi salam and what Allah favors her with, Zakaria alayhi salam benefits and he gets a child called Yahya alayhi salam. And that is the benefit of righteousness and knowledge and iman that your, your, your duas and the good that you do doesn't just impact you. But the believer is the one who is like the date palm tree and benefits all those that are around them as well. This is, uh, leads me on to today's question that I want to leave with you, inshallah ta'ala, to think about till tomorrow. And that is that in verse 38 and then verse 40. In verse 38, Allah Azza wa says that Zakhari makes dua to Allah with firm conviction, with yaqeen, with certainty, asking Allah for a child. But then in verse 40, it seems like he has some doubt. He says, Oh Lord, how can I possibly have a son? 
So now when he's given the child, it's as if he's had doubt. Whereas before he's making dua with certainty, when Allah actually answers his dua, it's as if he's doubting it. Why is that? How do we understand those two verses together? No, I'll leave that with you. So when his soul yearned for swift good news, this is the commentary of the next verse. When his soul yearned for swift good news, he said what is reported, and that is that Allah said, And that is an interesting fiqh discussion. If someone takes an oath not to speak, can they make dhikr? If they say, I take an oath by Allah, I will not speak, can they make dhikr? He was told not to speak, but he's remembering Allah day and night. I'm not going to give you an answer. It's an interesting discussion to have. As I mentioned, the hadith of Abu Hurairah Muslim, the Prophet said, وسلم, three children spoke in the cradle. Isa السلام, and his story will be mentioned in more detail when we come to Surah Maryam. The child of Juraj in the story of Juraj and the child in the story of the people of the trench, which will be mentioned in the tafsir of Surah Al Buruj. My 
that it's the message to be from Allah is one who creates Charles and our Father. Allah creates whatever He wills. إِذَا قَضَى أَمْرًا فَإِنَّمَا يَقُولُ لَهُ كُنْ فَيَكُونَ When he decides on creating something, he simply says, let it be, and he says, and then it comes into existence. وَيُعَلِّمُهُ الْكِتَابَ وَالْحِكْمَةَ وَالتَّوْرَاةَ وَالْإِنْجِيلِ He will teach him the book, meaning writing, and wisdom, and the Torah, and the Gospel. Whether يُعَلِّمُ he will teach, and يُعَلِّمُ we will teach. وَرَسُولًا إِلَى بَنِي إِسْرَائِيلِ As a messenger to the tribe of Israel, or to a child that will after also puberty. The great wisdom is the call that Maryam is fit and she became pregnant. More about this is mentioned in Surah Maryam, when Allah sent the Isa to the tribe of Israel, he said, I'm the messenger of Allah to you. I have brought you a sign of my truth, truthfulness from your Lord. أَنِّي أَخْلُقُ لَكُمْ مِنَ الطِّينِ كَهَيْئَةِ الطَّيْرِ فَأَنْفُقُ فِيهِ فَيَكُونُ طَيْرًا بِإِذْنِ اللَّهِ I will create and mold something like the form of a bird out of clay for you and then breathe into it and it will be a bird by Allah's permission. Bird as طَيْرًا and طَيْرًا So he created a bat for them, for it is like a bird and it flew while they were looking. Vanished from their sight and fell down dead so that the action of the creature would be clearly distinguished from the action of the creator who is Allah. So that would be known that perfection belongs to Allah alone. This is again an Israeli, and Allah Azza wa Jalla knows best, but it said that He created this bird as a sign from Allah Azza wa Jalla. When He breathed life into it and gave it life by Allah's permission, it flew. But as soon as He left their vision, their eyesight, or their line of sight, it died because it was there only to fulfill that miracle of His. And Allah knows best. <laughs> I will, heal, I will heal the blind, people who are born blind, and lepers. The blind and lepers are mentioned because they have defects. And Isa was an Afghani medicine, was very important. He would heal 50,000 people in a day by supplication, provided that they were already believers. I will bring the dead to life by Allah's permission. Allah's permission is repeated to negate any assumption of divinity. Isa brought to life a friend of his, the son of an old woman who was the daughter of a tax collector, and Sam, the son of Nuh. And again, these are all Israeliyat and Allah knows best. And the Prophets of Allah don't use their miracles just to bring back to life anyone and everyone or people's friends and their sons and so on and so forth. It is not meant for that reason. Especially Sam, who is one of the sons of Nuh, who would have come thousands of years before that time. And Allah knows best. Allah is my Lord and your Lord, so worship Him. 
This will be mentioned in a, in a further verse in the Quran in a different surah. Again, Allah Azzawajal knows best. That is also an Israelite tradition. His mother lived for six years after him. Al-Bukhari Muslim relate a hadith to the effect that he would stand near the house, the Kaaba, and give judgments according to the Sharia and our Prophet. Till the Dajjal takes and breaks the process and imposes Jizya. That hadith that is mentioned, I think the translators made a mistake. The hadith in Bukhari Muslim and even the hadith that is mentioned in the editions of As-Suyuti's tafsir that I mentioned, is that he will descend قرب الساعة, near the end of time, not near the Kaaba. 
That's not the hadith. The hadith is that Isa salam descends towards the end of time, Qurbu Sa'a, the hour, not the Kaaba. So I don't know if they made a mistake, but all of the editions of Asriyuti's tafsir, as well as the hadith that is in Bukhari Muslim, which is more important because that's what he's quoting, is concerning the hour. And that is the position of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah that Isa السلام, will descend towards the end of time as one of the major signs of Yawm al Qiyamah. And he will come and he will defeat the Dajjal. And he will establish peace upon earth. As is mentioned in the hadith of the Prophet وسلم, and he will make Hajj, as is also authentically mentioned in one of those wordings of hadith showing you that there will be Hajj after that period of the Dajjal. So Allah Azza wa gives the example here that if you follow Isa salam because of his virgin birth, then surely Adam salam in that logic has more right to be worshipped because he had neither father nor mother. Neither father nor mother. And the scholars say that there were people who created just from uh, a father. Or there is someone who was, who was created from both father and mother, that is all of humankind. Someone who was created from neither father nor mother, that is Adam salam. Someone who was created from a mother and no father, which is Isa salam. And someone who was created only from a male and not a female, and that is Hawa salam. And all of that shows Allah Azzawajal's power. And this verse and the verses to come speak about the importance of when following the prophets of Allah, we follow them in the way in which we are meant to follow them, in the way that has been legislated for us to follow them. And to take a prophet and to raise them above their station that Allah has set for them is not allowed. As we see today, unfortunately, in, with many Muslims, when they raise the Prophet ﷺ above his station, giving him attributes that don't belong to him, or giving him certain powers and abilities that are not from him to have because they are from the divine abilities that only belong to Allah Azza wa Jal. Saying, Oh Allah, curse the one who lies about the matter of Isa. The Prophet 
part of the delegation of Christians from Babylon had argued with him, and they said, we will think about it and then come back to you. Those of influence among them said to them, you have acknowledged his prophet. Was anyone cursed by a prophet is destroyed? They came to him, and he went out with Hassan and his slaves, found the man Ali, and said to them, when I have made supplications, say Ali, the Christians refused to perform the usual curse and made peace based on paying the jizya. Abu Na'im related it, and Ibn Abbas said, if those people had come out to make the supplications, they would have returned and found neither money nor family. It is said, if they had gone out, they would have been burned off. This, meaning which has been mentioned, is a true account about which there is no doubt. There is no God besides Allah. Allah, who is the Almighty, meaning His kingdom, the all wise, is what He does. If they turn away, meaning from belief, Allah knows the corruptors and will repay them. قُلْ يَا أَهْلَ الْكِتَابِ تَعَالَوْا إِلَى كَلِمَةٍ سَوَاءٍ بَيْنَنَا وَبَيْنَكُمْ They, O people of the book, meaning the Jews and Christians, come to a proposition which is the same for us and you. أَلَّا نَعْبُدَ إِلَّا اللَّهَ وَلَا نُشْرِكَ بِهِ شَيْئًا وَلَا يَتَّخِذَ بَعْضُنَا بَعْضًا أَرْبَابًا مِنْ دُونِ اللَّهِ It says that we should worship none but Allah and not attribute any part unto Him. And not take one another as Lord besides Allah, as they have done with their rabbis and monks. If they turn away, meaning from Tawheed, say, meaning to them, bear witness that we are Muslims, declaring the oneness of Allah. As in the hadith of Adi ibn Hatim radiallahu anhu, when he said, O Messenger of Allah, we never used to worship our rabbis and monks. The Prophet said, If they made something halal, didn't you take it as halal? And if they made something haram, you took it as haram? He said, Yes. He said, that is your worship of them. And that is also therefore the same that applies to us as Muslims just because a scholar, a shaykh, a leader, a mufti, whoever it is, says that something is halal or haram and we understand from the principles of the Quran and the Sunnah that it is not, it is not sufficient just to take that as proof. But rather, our religion is based upon the principles that we find in the Quran and the Sunnah and the scholars of truth and the scholars who are firm in their knowledge, they follow their principles, principles in terms of their rulings. When the Jews said that Ibrahim was a Jew and that they were following his deen and the Christians said the same thing, this was revealed. Ya ahl al And that's why we believe that every prophet that came came with Islam from Adam alayhi salam to our Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. They were all Muslims, and Allah says that in the Quran, clearly in a number of verses. You are people arguing about something you have no knowledge of. When you argue about Musa and Isa and claim that you are part of their deen, why do you argue about something you have no knowledge of regarding Ibrahim? Allah knows about the matter. You do not know. Allah then hears Ibrahim of what they say. Ma kana Ibrahim yahudiyyan wala nasraniyyan walakin 
Imam Al-Qurtubi mentions this as the cause of revelation that they invited Mu'adh radiallahu al Hudayfa, Ammar and others from amongst the companions to leave Islam and to follow their religion and so Allah Azza wa Jal revealed this verse This is mentioned by Ibn Kathir rahimahullah in his tafsir that one of the ways that they wanted to detract people from Islam and in, that, in those days the people of the book had a higher station in the societies of Arabia because they were more literate, more well educated, more versed and so they said that what we will do is we will enter into Islam, we will pretend to be Muslims so that people will think okay they will become Muslims and then by the end of the day, we will leave Islam. So they never wanted to be Muslims, they never believed in Islam, they never believed in the Prophet of the Qur'an. It was a, a trap or a, a, a plot of theirs that they would pretend to be Muslims by the morning, then leave Islam by the evening in the hopes that people will say, well, these people are more knowledgeable, more educated, better read than we are. They've had prophets before because they claim that prophets came to them throughout the centuries and generations. So if they know that they left in such a space of time, it shows therefore that this religion must be incorrect. And Allah Azza wa here exposes them on what they try to achieve. They also said, Then an interpretation 
impossible for anyone to be given the same as you are given, referring to the book of wisdom and excellence of character, or to argue with you before your Lord. The Jews are warning people not to go near anyone of that description, for they might, might follow their deen. It implies that the believers will defeat them on the day of writing because, they, because their deen is standard. Allah says, Say, all favor is in Allah's hands, he is in Allah's hands, and he gives it to whomever he wills. How can you say that no one will be given the same as they have been given? Allah is all-encompassing with his bounty, all-knowing of the people who merit it. He selects for his mercy whoever he wills. Allah's favor is indeed immense. And Allah Azza wa gives prophethood and places this wherever He pleases subhanahu wa ta'ala. They expected the Prophet to come from them because the Prophets came from Bani Israel for many generations and for many centuries. But Allah Azza wa can change that and place it where He wants and He gives His bounty and His favors where He pleases subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's why in the hadith in Sahih Bukhari when Abu Sufyan goes and stands before Hiraqal the Caesar of Byzantine Rome, Hiraqal says to him, I knew that a prophet was coming, but I never thought that he would come from you. He says that to him. He says that I knew that a prophet would be sent in this time or close to this time, but I never imagined that he would be from you. But Allah Azza wa places his prophethood where he pleases subhanahu wa ta'ala. <laughs> Allah, out of anger, will not speak to them or look at them with mercy or purify. 
There's a hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari, hadith of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu anhu. It says that the Prophet said sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, whoever makes a false oath in order to take away the right of another person will meet Allah and Allah will be angry with them. He says that two companions or two men came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and one of them said, O Messenger of Allah, we have a property or some land that is mine and my cousin, my relative refuses to give it to me. The Prophet ﷺ said to him, do you have witnesses? He said, no, O Messenger of Allah. He said, then that man must come and take an oath. He said, he doesn't care, he will take an oath. Doesn't bother him. He will take an oath and it will be a false oath. So Allah Azza revealed this verse concerning those people who wish to take something from this world which is insignificant compared to what is in the next world and compared to the punishment that Allah has placed for those people who take an oath by Allah falsely to take the rights of others. cause of revelation are mentioned in the books of tafsir. The first of them is that it's referring to the Christians as they worshipped Isa والسلام, and the second is that the companions who would come or came at some time to the Prophet وسلم, and wanted to prostrate before him because they saw that this was the practice that they had in other lands that they would prostrate before the emperors as a sign of respect and greeting. And some of them, as mentioned in authentic hadith, would come and they did this. And the Prophet said, why did you do this? And they said, because this is how in other lands people respect their and venerate their leaders. The Prophet said, no, do not go to extremes with regards to me. And prostration in this religion, therefore, is only allowed for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, whereas in previous sharia's, like in the story of Adam, like in the story of Yusuf, it was allowed as a sign of respect, but that is not allowed in this religion now. Remember when Allah made a 
money into the pockets now that we we have been removed. Okay. Allah made the corner into the pockets, yeah. Now that I have given you, brothers, Atay yeah, Nakum, Atay Tukum.
either the curse or the fire forever. The punishment will not be lightened. There will be granted no reprieve. Except for those who turn in repentance after that, I put things right, means by acting righteously. Really, Allah is ever forgiving to them, most merciful to them. In the Sahih of Ibn Hibban, the narration of Abdullah ibn Abbas, he says that these verses 86 to 89 revealed concerning a man from the Ansar who was a Muslim and then he apostated. And he left and he went to the land of the non-Muslims and then he regretted his decision. So he sent a message to someone that he knew in Medina to go to the Prophet and ask him, is there a way back for me? Can I accept Islam once again? And so Allah Azzawajal revealed these verses from 86 to 89 saying, how can they do this and then expect to come back? And then Allah Azzawajal makes exception in 89 except for those who are sincere in their repentance and truthful, then Allah Azzawajal is forgiving and merciful to them. This was revealed about the Jews. Those who disbelieved, meaning Isa, after having had belief in Musa, and then increasing their unbelief in Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, their repentance will not be accepted when they die unbelievers. They are undecided. As for those who disbelieved and died while still unbelievers, the amount of the whole earth filled with gold will not be accepted from any of them if they were to offer it as a ransom. The consequential conjunction that introduces the second clause because the unacceptability of any ransom is a consequence of dying as an unbeliever. They will have a painful punishment. You will have no helpers and no one to avert the punishment from them. You will not attain true goodness, meaning its reward, which is the garden, which is the gift of what you love, meaning of your property. And this is the verse that speaks about giving in the path of Allah with the best of your wealth and what you love. And in Bukhari and Muslim, the hadith of Anas radiallahu anhu said that when this verse was revealed, Abu Talha radiallahu anhu al-Ansari, he heard this hadith and he came to the Prophet and he said, O Messenger of Allah, there is no wealth of mine that is more beloved than my garden in Barha. And I wish to give it in the path of Allah Azza wa Jal. The Prophet said, what an amazing transaction, what an amazing transaction, what an amazing transaction. Give it to your relatives, the poor from amongst them. And he did so. And you have a number of a hadith concerning this from them. is a hadith concerning Umar radiallahu anhu that he did something similar. And the Prophet said to him, keep the, the land that you have as a waqf, as an endowment and the money that you get from it give it in charity and that is from the greatest types of sadaqah that can be given something that you consider to be good and precious to yourself and you give it to the sake or for the sake of Allah Azza wa Jal as a form of sacrifice and with that inshallah we come to the conclusion of the juz and today's session barakallahu feekum wa sallallahu ala nabiyya muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in wa akhiru da'wana alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen
This recording was produced by Green Lane Masjid. For more information on the activities and services the mosque provides, please visit www.greenlanemasjid.org.